All right. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? <laughs> Good? Great. Well, this morning we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be taking actually a break from our Roman series uh, because as a church, we always want to open up space where we're able to uh, open up some time and space for our community. And uh, for those that have been with us and been with Five Stones for a while, during our, our summer, we actually do a summer testimony series. Uh, and one of the testimonies that I wanted to actually get out last summer, that person wasn't quite ready, but right now that person is ready. Um, and so when uh, they contacted me, I said, yes, let's do it. And so we're going to be taking a break from our Roman series, and we're going to open it up uh, for uh, a time to hear kind of God's grace in, in, the, in their lives. So over the past year and a half as a church, for those that have only joined us in this time, you've probably heard about the Parsons a lot, and you're probably wondering, who are the Parsons? Why do we keep praying for them? What, what's going on with them? And so today, I'm gonna, we're going to bring up Garrick to share. I know that a lot of us have had a lot of questions for Garrick in terms of, how are you holding on right now? How are you doing this? What, what is keeping you sane in so many ways? And so we're going to bring Garrick up here, but Garrick's going to be able to kind of share a little about, about his own story, but he's also going to be sharing about what's happening in uh, his and Robin's life right now and, and kind of God, what God is doing in their life. And so for those that don't know, um, Garrick's wife is named Robin, and she's been in the hospital for since December of last year uh, with... Um, First, a bacterial infection, and now it's kind of escalated into a lot of other things. And so I'm going to bring Garrick up. I'm going to pray with Garrick, and then Garrick's going to share his story. I'm going to put this up for Garrick. <laughs> you know, like the shortest guy and the tallest guy here. Well, let's uh, extend our hands, pray for Garrick, and uh, I'm going to let him share his story again. Father God, we just come before you as a church family and as a church community. As, as we come and we hear just what you're doing in the Parsons family's life, specifically in Garrick's life. Lord, may we hear, may we sit, may we be able to just be involved in each other's lives. So, Lord, we thank you for just this family and that this can be a time where we share and we laugh and we cry together. So, Lord, we thank you and draw this in your name. Amen. So. Hi, my name is Garrick Parsons, but that's not who I am. I'm the primary master electrician here for the Newsminster School District, but that's not who I am. This year I've been called a stoic. This year I've been called a Sigma. I had to Google that one. That's not who I am either. I identify as a mushroom. I feed myself poop and keep myself in the dark so that I can exist in the light. 
Yes, I'm still on medication for high blood pressure as a stress has to go somewhere. I'm an irritated man who uses humor as a coping mechanism to prevent people from getting close to me, so much that I prevent people from seeing the guard that I keep. For I fear that if people see the guard that I keep, I feel like they're more likely to try and take down my defenses. I like to think of myself as a funny guy and a pretty good flirt. I enjoy making people laugh and smile with a quick wit, for when I make people laugh, it's not just the sound that I hear, it's like a signature that makes any moment better, especially when I make a girl snort with laughter at my jokes. That's all I got. <laughs> nah, I got a story to tell. Well, one to write, according to most people, when I give them short stories about my life. So if there's anyone in the congregation that has a major in English and awesome editorial skills, connect with me, and you can turn this into a book for as long as the proceeds go to Five Stones afterwards. I would like to sincerely thank everyone at Five Stones for helping my family out in this difficult time and for those that continue to visit Robin. as She looks forward to people when they visit her. I call her about twice a day and I try and see her almost once a day with the kids and the biggest help for my family has been the meal train. And just a brief update about Robin, she ended up back in the Royal Columbian Hospital on Wednesday. I was with her between midnight and five in the morning. She went back in with a continuous nausea and vomiting and decreased level of consciousness as well as hypercalcemia. And for the first time, I actually felt burnt out. This is a dark testimony, not quite 50 shades of dark, but a few shades of darkness. My testimony contains violence, mental and emotional anguish with markers of post-traumatic stress disorder and a profound amount of grace. If anyone's uncomfortable with this graphic details, please leave now. No one ever does. I do not really consider this to be my testimony, but a victim impact statement on reality. And it might be best to watch a Disney movie after hearing this. Where to begin? I'm a 36-year-old, and I'm proud to be a millennial. If you do the math, I was born in the 80s, but I'm not an 80s kid. I was born in the 80s, raised in the 90s, grew up in the 2000s, matured in the 2010s, and became a man last year. I've been baptized twice, once by water and once by fire. I'm a hardened man by previous life experiences. I've been coped and refined by the fire, literally and figuratively. I carry a cross on my shoulder and a chip on the other. The Lord set me on this path of what it is to be a man today, despite everything. I have the ability to stand and keep my chin up. I used to think of how lucky I am with everything I've gone through, but I realize it's been the grace of God that I'm here today. For I've cheated death more than once, more than I can count, and grace when I could have faced jail time. I've wiped out twice on a motorcycle, and on the second time I ended up in the hospital, just the usual ground beef, road rash, and dislocated hand, which has lasting effects for me in the cold. I was pulled over by the Mounties twice, once for doing over twice the highway speed limit, and given a small fine. I was given even more grace that day because I forgot my license. The second time, I was drifting and came into an intersection doing 120 kilometers an hour and left big black marks on the pavement and a trail tire smoke. This was an intersection much like, much like any intersection on Royal Ave here in New West. The second time being pulled over was the only time I never took responsibility for my actions. I took the charge to court, the Mountie showed up, gave his statement. The judge looked at the photos that were taken and said, I hear what you're saying officer, but from the pictures, I cannot tell if the, car's, if the car was indeed sideways. Just one more example of grace I received. 
I have a bit of bittersweet feelings towards the Mounties as my first job was on horseback, performing the musical ride as it was back in the 1800s when the RCMP was called the Northwest Mounted Police. I had a blast doing this job on horseback as I looked pretty handsome in uniform and on a horse. We did everything for those horses. We trained them, groomed them, fed them, gave them medications to them, and we did our performances all summer. The bitter part of my feelings toward the Mounties has to do with my dad. I lost the childhood magic that I once had, and I was taken from me too early. I witnessed, I witnessed my dad get the beat down by the Surrey RCMP, not in our house, not outside the house, but on TV. There's a TV show there was a TV show called To Serve and Protect that aired in the 1990s here in the Lower Mainland of police busting bad guys. Sort of like the show Cops. I think most people from Vancouver remember this show. This completely devastated me as a kid seeing my dad like that. All boys look up to their dads and on that day my childhood magic was taken from me. This created a lot of convictions for me as a dad. Shortly after Elliot was conceived, of course Robin could not drink anymore so I stopped drinking too. Even afterwards, when Elliot was born, I was thinking about picking up some Heineken, but I've always decided to buy my kids toys instead of buying beer. We are a clean household, and I only occasionally pick up beer with zero alcohol content. Boys always pay for the sins of their dads. My payment was growing up poor. I'm talking about wearing two sweatshirts in the wintertime poor. I grew up in a town complex that was owned by the Union Gospel Mission. It was a subsidized housing that had families like mine, newly immigrant and refugee families. We didn't have much, but we had each other from all sorts of different backgrounds. As a father, I always wanted to make my kids' lives better at the expense of mine, in the hope that they do not have to pay for my sins. Last year, if most of you recall, I worked at BCIT part-time just so we can afford daycare for the kids. I used to enjoy going to work because it was a nice break for my family, but my work is just as stressful, as dynamic and colorful. I oversee all the electrical in all the schools, as well as I work on telephone systems, security systems, public address and access control. I often meet with different police agencies to go over camera footage at our sites when they need help collecting evidence of crimes or tracking suspects through the city. I also work on the fire alarm systems and I get called every time the fire alarm goes off and I must meet the firemen at the schools. Don't get me wrong, I do have a great job with decent pay, but a generous benefit package of full medical dental coverage as a great pension when I retire. Everyone sees how, how successful I am at what I'm doing, but do not see my struggles. I struggle to keep the magic going for both my kids as they both have wild imaginations. Robin being sick for so long, I've been unable to fill both roles. I cannot be both mom and dad. I can't be dad either, so I just focus on keeping the magic for both the kids. And it's a struggle because I refuse to ask for certain help. Early on when Robin was in the hospital, health behavior psychologist told me essentially to get a stand-in for Robin. Someone to come in could come over three to four nights a week and give me a hand. She said preferably female. And I said, that sounded like a girlfriend or a stand-in, and I was hurt by that. I continue to get chewed out every so often for refusing to get that kind of help. I know what it is for is to keep the balance of things. I know how hard it is to manage everything. I've essentially been a single dad for over a year now, 
I am in purgatory with Robin's illness of her no longer suffering and passing away to the hope that she will come home and live a normal life. I know the statistics and I felt I could get past it based on my strength of character. But like the sins of a married man and the darkness I struggle for a companion and my struggle for wanting certain help as this has caused me to look elsewhere and be tempted. And I have tempted and it crashed and burned for me. Despite the grace she thought she was giving me, I felt her judgment for doing so. She did not give me a chance to explain my intentions. And in this season, I feel like a captive caregiver. It's a lonely road, lonely road that I walk because I do not know anyone who knows what I'm going through. I'm not ashamed of trying to look for a companion this time. I know people judge me just for saying that, but walk in my shoes for a thousand miles and then judge me. Many of us are broken, not in just two pieces, but often into many pieces. And it's hard to put the pieces back where they belong because it's because you forget how the pieces fit back together. Imagine doing a puzzle upside down, and that's how I feel most days. And this brokenness is where the darkness hides. It is where the demons hides. We want to save the light, and it's hard to escape this now, and only Lord can show me how. The reason why I keep my guard so high is I don't want people to get close because it's where my darkness hides. We can all imagine that things got worse for me. Robin passes away, etc. But can you imagine? I've been through worse. I've already lived this before. I've already been through worse. When Robin and I met, I was a fireman. We met in nursing school. Yes, I've been both a nurse and a fireman. I was on call a lot, and we ended up doing some date nights at the fire hall, backdraft style, except her name's Robin, not Jennifer, like in the movies. I think this is what captivated her in the beginning because I was her fire starter. Robin is my type, but out of my league, and she feels like a Google to me because she's everything I've ever searched for. Robin would communicate with such kindness and clarity. She contains, contains a comfort and energy that makes stressful times so much more bearable. She liked putting on my bunker gear, even though it smelled like disgusting smoke. Robin used to get a big grin when I would take her out for a spin in one of our fire trucks to put fuel in or to take, take to the truck wash to get washed, or simply just drive the fire truck around town. I'd get a really big grin too just for doing that for her. My first call as a fireman was a domestic hostage taken in progress. The call came in as our simply requested medical help. In the beginning, it only came in as the lowest priority, an alpha level call. But en route, it got upgraded to a delta level call. When we arrived on the scene, we found a little girl crying, covered in gasoline, and someone trying to comfort her. As we quickly gathered, gathered information with RSMP, who arrived at the same time. We discovered why she was covered in gasoline, and we began to realize how bad this situation truly had become. The captain and I got packed up with all of our gear, ready for what could happen next. Before really trying to plan anything, the Mountie grabbed me and brought me into the house, where we found a man covered himself and his family in gasoline, threatened to light them on fire. The Mountie quickly grabbed the man, threw him outside and arrested him, and the family was transported to a hospital to get cleaned up and to meet with special services. As with all traumatic calls, 
you've always decided that to debrief and talk about the call, depending on the call we would get, we'd bring in the counselor within 24 hours to talk about our feelings. We use a tool called CISM, Critical Incident Stress Management. We always trained harder than any call we ever received. Some calls, we just went with our gut instinct. Our training officer always called our training sessions impending doom training. We would train until we broke. One such training session is what we call the rollover. When the flames roll over top of you and you cannot crack the nozzle, the flames roll over top of you. And to put this into perspective, a household barbecue is about 30 to 40,000 BTUs. While this rollover scenario was a 1 million BTU fire that went over my head, and I can remember it felt like being in a furnace and being smothered by the fire. This next call was one we couldn't really prepare for. A structure fire call came in out of the farm. When we arrived on scene, our spotty sense tingled. There wasn't anyone around, and it looked suspicious of the fire behavior. I got packed up along with others and got to work trying to put the fire out. We were working in pairs. The fire was in multiple spots, like in the hedges, some of the land, small barn, and the burn pile was going. While I was trying to knock down the flames, I could feel something hit my shoulder, but every time I looked, there was nothing, so I didn't think much of it. But my partner was trying to get my attention to what was happening behind us. Just then on the radio, Deputy Chief called emergency traffic three times. Emergency traffic, emergency traffic, emergency traffic. Shots fired. Stop all fire brown, fire battleground activities. There was a fire, there was a farmer firing a shotgun into the air, wanting us to leave his property. My partner and I were like sitting ducks, unable to take cover. So I didn't feel like getting shot that day. And I said to him, you think what I'm thinking? He said, if you go, I go. Knowing the structural limitations of our gear, we used the fire as our cover fire and the smoke as a smoke screen and ran through the burning hedges to the other side. Thankfully, it was peacefully resolved within minutes. The farmer put his gun down. This is not the first time I've been involved with gun violence. When I was three years old, I was at a, I was at a safe with my mom and dad in Surrey and I was robbed at gunpoint. And just like that in the movies, everyone was screaming, scared, looking for cover. Nobody got hurt, but everyone in the store was pretty shaken up, as this is something you only see in the movies. So far, it sounds like I've had a pretty crazy life. This testimony is only just a small window of my life, and I'm not even halfway through it yet. I haven't had a midlife crisis yet. I've been desensitized to blood and gore before becoming a fireman. I once had a summer job at a pork slaughterhouse where I'd worked the kill floor rendering. And being a nice guy, I once said yes to overtime and rendering. An auger broke down that carried the guts and the heads into the bin to be made into dog and cat food. So I was asked to hand bomb and hand bomb and the guts and intestines and logs, lungs and all. By the end of the shift, I was covered in blood, bile, feces and everything in between. Definitely like a scene from The Walking Dead working there. But none of that prepared me for what we call echo level calls of body recovery or confirmed suicides. Everyone looks kind of sick right now, so I'll spare you the details and just say it's nothing like the movies, mainly because the TV movies do not convey the smell of decomposing bodies. 
as you can now see the path that the Lord has sent me on, dealing with the stress of being a fireman and the learning and becoming a nurse to help be prepared to understand Robin's illness. Robin first became sick shortly after she returned from that week with Chelsea. She was in and out of emergency several times. Her mental, her mental status was becoming more and more difficult to deal with as it seemed like she didn't care about anything and it was extremely frustrating for me and the kids because she kept on getting sent home. A couple of times I took the kids out for a drive to my favorite area out by Agassiz just to get out of the house. Later realizing Robin had to get worse before it showed just how sick she really was. Her brain was peppered with lesions and one about the size of my fist. Robin has a lot of different working diagnoses, but the main one is her fungal brain infection called cryptococcus encephalitis, which means that the fungus has been attacking the actual working tissues of her brain called parenchyma. Think of meningitis, but worse. I beg for help from her parents to give me a hand and they refuse. I ask for help twice more, twice from them after that. And the last time I read them the right act and laid it out to her mom and dad and it put them to tears. Since then, I do not talk to them. My parents have come down a dozen times to help me out when they can. My dad helped out a lot this year and it broke him. I've realized that other people have taken this a lot harder than me. Often people were only able to see Robin once in the hospital. This go around, such as members of my extended family and her close friends. My clairvoyance kicked in back in December when Robin was admitted again. I just knew it was bad. My clairvoyance is what gives me confidence in life. Often my clairvoyance is a burden and not a gift for me. On January 3rd, I got a call that Robin was brought back into criti critical care. I didn't think much of it because she had been there before when she was admitted on December 18th. But on top of her lesions, she had multiple clots in her lungs and legs. But I had a funny feeling about this call, so I basically left work right away and went to the hospital. To find out Robin was in critical condition, where she remained so for about two months. She had a massive bleeding from her brain, a large lesion was getting bigger, and was pushing against the other side of her brain. I happened to get there just as they were about to make a decision to take her off life support or try drilling into her head to relieve the pressure on her brain with no guarantees of success given how much pressure was on her brain, to which the neurosurgeon has had to drill into her skull numerous times to relieve the pressure on her brain. To put things into graphic detail, Imagine a small salad bowl and you divide it into two halves and you place ground beef into the two sections and you shove some garlic cloves and unground pepper. And then you place your fist into one side and you can imagine how much ground beef is being displaced. This was Robin's brain. When the neurosurgeon discussed with us what we had to do to make Robin live, we decided yes to go for the surgery as the only means to make her live. When the neurosurgeon did the first craniotomy on her, he had said to me, when he removed her skull to access her brain, it was literally swelling of her skull. And as it was excavating the large lesion from the brain, the swelling was starting to come back down under her skull. The next day, Robin was eating and sitting upright. The surgeon was 
completely overjoyed to see her talk and eating and movement in those rooms. However, despite successful surgeries, Robin has a permanent valve in her brain to help drain excess cerebral spinal fluid away from her brain. And due to, and due to being on some heavy medication and bed rest for almost four months, this caused significant mobility issues for Robin and continuous setbacks related to her. Dead or alive, Robin is a case study due to how rare this infection is. Elsewhere in undeveloped countries such as those in Africa, her fungal infection has a 100% mortality rate. Those two months for Robin with multiple brain surgeries is some of the darkest times I've ever experienced. I felt and lived in the dark. I begged for mercy every day. I begged to switch places with her. I still do. I still question why it is her and not me that got sick. For the kids to be without their mom is a tragedy. Kids are always without their dads, whatever top 10 reasons you could come up with. I cannot remember how many times I talked to death, begged for mercy for Robin. I talked to death and begged to make her live no matter the conditions. We've missed birthdays, Christmas, anniversaries. I'm in constant turmoil with wanting to see Robin and actually spending some quality time with Elliot and Chelsea. Because of this turmoil, I have constant anxiety of having to carry my phone with me in case I get the call, in case I get the call with constant fear of the worst. When I do call Robin twice a day, my anxiety goes up when she doesn't answer her phone. I hate having to carry my phone around me, but my anxiety of it keeps it on my hip. Robin does not remember really anything from December to February due to the impact of things on her brain. Knowing this, I often have guilt if I made the right decision given how much Robin has suffered and will continue to suffer as she's unlikely to live a normal life again. Now, on the fire, de fire department, it wasn't all doom and gloom. We got to do some pretty cool things that I didn't even know was on my bucket list. Oftentimes, people in rural areas rural areas would donate their old homes for us to practice in and we'd burn them down. Lighting a house on fire is actually pretty cool. <laughs> and also people would donate their old cars for us to practice and cut them up and guess it, lighting them on fire. One such practice we ended up by towing this cut up car back to the fire hall as our training grounds were just outside the town limits. This car had no roof, no doors anymore, and it's still smoldering a bit. So I got Roland told to sit in the driver's seat to try and keep the steering wheel straight as we got towed back to the fire hall. Well, on the way back, the hood flew up, hit me in the head, and I could not see where I was going anymore. I've also received training as a certified ice rescue technician, and a couple times a year, we'd practice saving people that have fallen through the ice. We'd put on dry suits and jump into the frozen lake. As a teenager, I've always wanted to drive a Ferrari or Lamborghini, but nothing beats driving a fire truck with lights and sirens, to which I let Robin play with them too when we take a truck out for a burn around town. Not even when I was in air cadets flying planes and gliders have come close to the feeling of driving a fire truck. People just like part with the Red Sea when you're driving a fire truck. Another highlight as a fireman was I got Firefighter of the Year in 2013 for dedication and acts of valor. It was around this time that I received my commission from the ranks and became an officer in the fire service. I was awarded the rank of lieutenant. 
Being away from the hospital and ambulance services, we sometimes would make a call for air support if there's a chance for survival. And one such call, we needed air support. We had just did the training on how to mark out the landing spots for the helicopters. And my captain delegated that to someone who answered with not a lot of confidence. And I piped up with confidence, like, I can do this for us. And it was intense being underneath the helicopter while I was landing. I think I was standing right here, and you guys are at the helicopter, feeling like the thrust of like rotor blades on top of me. Um, during this uh, scene, I'd stayed with the helicopter, and the pilot had turned off the rotors because apparently medics had trouble stabilizing the patients before transport. So he asked if I wanted to jump into the front seat and get a selfie. I look back at my life experiences and the graces and mercy of the Lord continues to show me. I scrape the barrel every day of energy to continue to manage everything, keeping up with Elliot's autism team and schooling. Chelsea seems to be progressing in the same fashion as Elliot, but she has a degenerative lung condition that requires interventions every night. Sometimes I do wish I had a companion in this time to help fill the gaps with things, delegate answering all my emails, phone calls, and text messages for everything for my family, just so I can give them a break, and just the nurtured companionship that I do not have right now. This is a lot to unpack for people to hear, and I do not have time to go into further details because I do not want to turn this into a one and two part testimony. So I'm open to discussing things further on a one-on-one basis if anyone has questions or concerns. In the end, I'm not able to see through most of my days, but I can always see my next step. And it is, and that's what keeps me going, my ability to see the next step. No matter how small or big it is, I do not go to bed till all the laundry and dishes are done. I do not leave the house until my bed is made. It is a crappy feeling to come home after bad day after bad day after bad day to see dirty dishes in the sink, not having a, a clean bed to come into. As dark as my life has been, I do not have troubles sleeping at night. I sleep like a drunk baby. I continue to maintain oneself and have mostly a clear conscience. It is not about being lucky, it's about the grace that I receive from the Lord. Only he knows where my path is to continue. I have filled my life with rocks, and now I just appreciate the little sand that fills my jar. The Lord has shown me mercy. I have the resolute to continue on this path, notwithstanding the boulevard of broken dreams. Rob and I were trying to build a life to tickets you cannot sell. So if anyone of you feel like writing my story, connect with me because it's just the tip of the iceberg for me. I also have original story ideas based on inspirations throughout my life, as I'm sure there's an English major here. I'm not just tall and handsome, but dark, poetically dark. And given that I use humor as a coping mechanism, and I like to make people submit to my wit. If I quit being an electrician and become a stand-up comedian, it means a doctor couldn't talk me off the cliff. Thank you. <clears throat> a story that's not finished and still being written. I think this is just a glimpse of a bigger story in which God is weaving in Garrick's life but in the Parsons family. This is just Garrick's side of the story. 
I'm not sure there's a lot for me to say because I don't want to take away from what has been said. In the Bible, in Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about there's a time for everything. There's time to be born, time to die, time to plant, time to uproot, time to kill, time to heal, a time to tear down and time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. The Bible reminds us that we live in a place where we go through the full gamut of humanity. Where we live in a place where we go through the full gamut of the emotions. Sometimes things are hard. And for the Parsons family, this last year has definitely been hard. And in so many ways, there's grief and mourning. So what does the Bible tell us about mourning? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is mourning? Mourning is just not something that we do when someone passes. But mourning is something that we do when we lose something. When we lose a way of life, when we lose hope of a future together. When we lose the dreams that we held on to. That in those times of mourning and grief, we can be comforted. We have many, many characters in the Bible that have mourned. They have lamented. Psalms 13, David writes this as a lament. David says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation, and I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. I believe this lament is the same as what Garrick has shared today. It is a cry. It is weeping. It is that sorrow that we have to go through. But in it, in expressing this sorrow, David still trusts. You see, in our church culture, sometimes we don't like to talk about mourning. We don't like to talk about grief. Because we only like to talk about the hope that Jesus has given us. But the thing is, Jesus also mourned. He also wept. And that weeping is part of the human condition. 
If we look at the Bible, there is a whole book that is based on lament. The book is literally called Lamentations. That book is about how we, how they weep over the destruction of Jerusalem. And that this weeping is good because in that place, God is able to step in and bring comfort. In that place, God is able to extend joy. But what is lamenting? Lamenting is a prayer language for God's people. It is a time in beyond in what beyond just venting, beyond just sharing our pain, beyond just giving all of our emotions to God. It is a prayer because in lamenting we build trust. In lamenting we begin to see God's care. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. The practice of lamenting is one of the most theologically formed actions a person can take. We lament because we know that God is good and God is sovereign. We lament because we know God's promises. It doesn't mean that we don't experience pain. It doesn't mean that we don't experience sorrow. Lamenting is a language for the living. And it's between the poles of hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. It is a prayer for people who are waiting for the day of Jesus' return. Today we get to sit with Garrick's story. And like I said, it's still being written. As I sat with Garrick, as he shared, I couldn't imagine being in his position. I couldn't even try to empathize what he was going through. But to see where Garrick is, he tells me that it's because of his life experiences that he's able to weather through what is happening right now. But I look at my life experiences and I'm just like, I still couldn't weather through what you're going through right now. And so as a church, we don't need any answers to this. We don't, need to we don't need to understand what God is doing. But as a church, we need to trust that God has a plan. And so as we heard Garrick's story today, I hope it serves as an encouragement for us as a church to continue to pray to continue to step into the places where Garrick needs help, to continue to go to those places of compassion in our hearts and say, how can we help? 
Derek's not a person that will ask for help. He, he shared that with us. And so this is for us as a church to come up with creative ways to help him. Maybe you have time. Maybe spend some time with his kids. Maybe you have time. Maybe go and sit with Derek and just go for coffee. Maybe you have time, go visit Robin. Maybe you have time, go pray with Robin. I think this is an opportunity for the church to come around and be that family that Derek needs. Be that family that Elliot needs. Be that family that Chelsea needs. Be that family that Robin needs. And so, this is where I'm going to end off. I think it's good for the church to experience grief. I think it's good for the church to experience mourning. Because this is the time that as we go through this, that we're able to see God's grace more. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to you. We come to you with all our emotions. We come to you with all our anxieties. We come to you with all our grief. We come to you with all our mourning. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for your peace. And Lord, we just pray for Derek, we pray for Robin, we pray for Elliot, we pray for Chelsea. And Lord, we ask for your hand to just be upon them. We ask for your peace to be upon them. And Lord, as a church, we trust that you have a plan for this family. that in the messiness of life that you are there. So Lord, we, we come before you. We ask for your restoration. We ask for your healing. We ask for re your redemption. And in our brokenness, and in our crying, we come and we just give it all to you, knowing that you are God and that you care. So Lord, we thank you, we worship you, we give all praise to you. And as a church, we trust in you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you that uh, we have heard the story and the testimony of our brother Garrick and uh, 
Thank you for reminding us that uh, there's grace. But sometimes it's hard. It's hard when we're going through really difficult moments. And I thank you for the word that uh, in, in, your, in your word, in the Bible, that uh, it's filled with realism. There are places where the people of God are suffering so much and, uh, and they cry out to you. As we know, like in Psalm 88, the psalmist cries out to you and uh, wondering when everything's going to end. It feels like his soul is ending up in, in the place of the dead and uh, feels like defeat. And, uh, and even in the closing of the psalm, it talks about how he feels like even the darkness is his closest friend. And I thank you for the word that tells us that it's okay to lament. That it's okay to feel the depths of sadness, the depths of grief, the depths of mourning, the depths of what it means to be human on a broken world. And so we thank you again for the reality of the scriptures, the reality of, of you, Jesus, most of all, who suffered and died on that cross for us. That Jesus, you identify with all that's going on that's so broken and so filled with sin and, and darkness. And you know it intimately you know what it's like you know what it feels to have folks who would gasp in horror over what you went through and we pray that uh, you'll be very close to all of us here right now especially Derek and and Robin that you would be with them and help them to know your comfort help them to know your peace help them to know that uh, you know what it's like to, to feel all that, uh, all that pain and struggle, all that, all that's there in our, in their lives. And I thank you, Jesus, that uh, you know it so well. And I ask that you would help us to grasp. Help us to grasp how great your love is, even for those who are of us who are mourning and struggling and in pain. How great your love is that there's nothing in this life or even in the next life that or ever anything in the world that can separate us from you. So Lord Jesus, I ask for your blessing on your people that they would know the good news that, yeah, you, you died on the cross, Jesus, for all of us, for all the brokenness of this world. And you've announced that uh, a new creation, it's on its way. A new creation in, in you, Lord Jesus. A new creation that uh, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. 
And we look to you for that hope. And we look to you, Lord Jesus, for, uh, for, for you to carry us when we can't carry ourselves. So Jesus, thank you again for, for, the, for the scriptures, for, for you, for your work. Help us to truly rely on you and trust you, especially when we are, when we are totally broken and totally feel like it's, it's so out of shape and, and we, can't, we can't even move anymore. Help us, God. So now bless your people. Bless them as they contemplate, meditate on, on even lamenting and, uh, and coming to you with all their griefs and sorrows. Bless your people as they go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.